welcome to episode 51 of Slaytanic Vercast. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, broadcasting from Mark Zuckerberg's rebranding office, is Dr. Lee Quessence. How you doing, Doc? Um, very well. Uh, I'm not merely very well. I'm very wealthy this mm. week. Oh, uh, yes. Because, well, you, you know, you, you, you don't get contract. When, when you look like I do... Um, it's it's often hard to make a living in in, in the marketing business, sure. and um, when when um, when I got the phone call from Marky, I, I, I call him Marky. He lets me call him Mark. Um, he uh, he likes he and the uh, the other directors of uh, of his company to um, uh, to be called Marky Mark and the Funky Bench. Sure, yeah, of course, yeah, a good lovely uh, call back to the nineties, brilliant. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 I, I call him Marky. We're, mm. we're, we're, we're like that. Mark oh, yeah. And I are. Yeah, yeah. Bosom um, buddies. Yeah. Um, I actually, of course, don't have a bosom or even a chest. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, so, so, sometimes he, he clasps me like to his chest and where my chest wouldn't be if there were, if, if there were anything other than a foul smelling cavity there. Um, <laughs> full of, full of vile goo. Yeah. Um, and he said, Doc, Doc, he said, um, I'm in a world of trouble. I'm in a world of trouble. Um, the kids ain't down um, with Facebook now. And everyone thinks that Facebook is just just for your gram. That's it. Um, I think it needs a makeover. It needs a rebrand. Um, and I think it needs rebranding um, as a Lovecraftian entity. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, so we, we we had a chat for a while, and I said, "Yeah." Well, so what what I suggest for your rebrand um, is something with such subtle but monumental power that even without realizing it, um, it will stretch out its tentacles like throughout human society and throughout the underground world and the overground world um, until it's enthralled and enslaved a good four out of five people on the planet. And no one can even think about getting up in the morning without like fi- finding out uh, what it's going to do. And Mark shook his head sadly and said, "We did that, but it didn't work out so well. Yeah. That's why we're hiring you." Where did you come up with the name Meta? What made you think of that, Doc? Um, well, obviously, I'm 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 a Meta kind of guy. Yeah. Um, I am I am all about humanity without actually being human. You are a meta creature made made flesh, made corporeal, aren't you, Doc? Yeah, uh, I mean, um, there's so little of my original. I, I think there's one fingernail mm. um, of my original human body remaining, um, except, of course, that's now now that's now grown into an eight inch an eighteen inch long claw um, with a fearsomely sharp edge. Um, but I, I think that's the only part of me um, that's still remaining is is is, is one third fingernail. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, I am a creature um, that is made of 
the suffering and the angst of a whole entire culture. And you don't get much more meta than that. Well, that's true. How do you feel, though, Doc, about the fact that um, Hebrew speakers are kind of mocking the name meta because of the, because of the meaning of the word in Hebrew? Kutzbach. That's all I've got to say on the subject. Kutzbach. Very good. Very good. We'll, we'll leave it there but in case we get into any trouble. Um, Doc, I've got the lurgy. I've got the lurgy. I feel rough. Um, what what manner of lurgy have you got? Oh, it's just a real nasty, nasty head cold, coughing and spluttering, headache, all, all that good stuff. So sorry, listeners, if there's any unpleasant coughing and spluttering you sound during this episode. You haven't been messing around with those 40-gallon drums that you bought off that dodgy uh, Ukrainian lorry driver and which you thought was cheap speed and mm. I insisted was Soviet nerve poison. Mm. Oh, you haven't been sniffing any of that. I haven't, actually, because, you know, obviously I've been doing my uh, Return of the Living Dead rewatch, and I'm, I'm a bit terrified that it's the same substance that zombifies the American population. It's making me most unnerved. Something strange is going on. You see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Sure. They ship those bodies. Well, say hello. The dead have risen from the grave. How many did you say? A hundred. And now the question is, how do we get them back into the ground? Well, that's why I bought you that stethoscope. Oh, yeah, All you yeah. have to do is, is to hold the stethoscope against the outside of the barrel. And if you can't hear any bubbling and moaning <laughs> from the inside, then it, it probably... It probably doesn't have a corpse preserved in dioxin in, in, inside it. That's it, yeah. Doc, video game update. Just a brief one this time. I'm so close to my Crash Bandicoot 2 Platinum Trophy. I can, I can almost taste it, Doc, if I, if I could actually <laughs> taste it at the moment. What a so brilliant game it is. on this mission for quite a while haven't you i have it's tough it's a tough old road um it's testing my um it's t- you know t- it's testing my, my my levels of skill and coordination with the controller it's, it's rock hard good lord yeah um, so you play a broad from what you've described to me you play a broad range of games from the the sort of plot and character oriented ones to mm-hmm. ones which are 
merely demanding on your skills of human dexterity. That's it. Um, are you able to enjoy both at the same time? Or do, do you go through like phases in your life where you want to play nothing but demanding action games and then you want to play nothing but plot and character games? Yeah, the, the thing is, Doc, it's a great question. And you're quite correct, I do play both, both of those types of games. But the plot-based games, I, I, I generally play almost zero attention to the plot. You know, I'm there for the game. I'm there for the game mechanics. You know, I'm there for the actual for the gameplay. Um, that's why God of War irritated me so much. You know, because it kind of forced you to sit through the to to sit through the story, and I just wasn't interested. Because normally, when I'm playing a video game, I'm doing something else. You know, I'm listening to a podcast, or you know, I'm watching some Trek or some Who or some Seinfeld, something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. So, you so. Know, you Go on, Doc. You don't, find, you don't find video games to be the like wholly immersive experience. No, I've, I've just I've never understood it. You know, I, okay. I, I listen to plenty of like gaming podcasts, and, and you know, people talk about that as part of their enjoyment. I've never really got that. For, for me, video games is just the mechanics, just the gameplay, man. I'm not I'm not interested in the story, and here's why: because the you know the level of writing. And performances is just not a fucking patch on movies, on high quality movies, high quality TV. So if I want story, if I want narrative, if I want to watch great performances, guess what? I'll watch a TV show. I'll watch a movie. You know, if I want to play a game, I want to play a game, not not be told a story. You said this before, and I'm probably running the risk of repeating myself here, but I, I, I was surprised when you said it. Mm. And the reason I was surprised when you said it was I'd been reading for years about how the the narrative experience um, and the visual experience of, of, of modern video games. And I've, I've read this in at least two different places. Um, and I quote, shames all of the visual media. Well, they're, they're talking out their asses, Doc. They are to- I mean, if anybody said that, they are literally talking out of their asses. You know, go and watch a fucking Scorsese film. Go and watch some Aronofsky. Go and watch some Fincher. And then you come back and tell me that video games are, are, are even close in terms of narrative and performance. Not a chance. Right. So here's an idea that I had. Um, do you suppose those people just watch really bad movies? Well, they either watch terrible movies or they don't watch, you know, enough quality movies. I suspect that, you know, their diet... You know what they consider to be quality movies is like all the like all the Marvel and DC shit, basically. Sorry, possibly even video game movies. I mean, video game movies are notoriously terrible. I don't think anybody yeah. likes them. Um, I don't think there's been a good one. Assassin's Creed was kind of okay. The latest Tomb Raider was like kind of okay. Um, my favourites are actually the um, the Resident Evil movies because they're just kind of unashamed kind of kitschy, good, gory fun. Um, um, are those also the ones that predominantly fi- uh, feature uh, Mila Hovavich in a soaking wet dress and no underwear? Correct. Absolutely correct. Yeah, she, she, yeah she, she's the main protagonist. Yeah, kind of you, you've got, you're battling zombies in her, in her skimpies, basically. Yeah, and uh, who doesn't love that? Let's be honest. The funny thing for me about that is there was um, obviously a bit of nerdling about... Um, oh, is there a vague possibility of a uh, Miller Herfovich nude scene? Um, oh, yes. If you 
ever glanced at the face or ID or anything in the early to mid-90s. Um, the biggest trouble was finding a picture of Miller Hovovich with some clothes on. <laughs> very good, Doc. Uh, very good. I mean, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's not precisely... Uh, um, Miller Hovovich's nipples are not precisely new to the world. No, they're not hard to find, are they? If you're dead set on glimpsing them, they're not hard to find, are they? Let's be honest. Um, so that... that, that that amused me quite a bit. Um, yeah. um, there is talking about video game films. I believe I've mentioned this film quite recently in a completely different context. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, you know um, movies that effectively follow the narrative structure of video games. Go on. Um, I watched. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of these films you should watch that I've been putting off for years, um, and I, I watched all the President's Men. One to unit one. Base one to unit one. Hold it, you mother! Hold it! Police! There's been a break in at Democratic headquarters. And they were bugging the place. Woodward, Bernstein, right. you're both on the story now. Don't get out. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember. The President's Men, the story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be Mr. Colson. And it occurred to me shortly afterwards while I was, if I've understood video games correctly, what a fantastic video game that would make. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't know if I've seen that one. Is that Jack Nicholson? Is, is that the You Can't Handle the Truth movie? No. Ah. Um, it's... Um, uh, Two people who are pretty far from being Jack Nicholson. Um, <laughs> it's Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Oh, go on. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's a tiny, quiet little movie um, about two reporters basically attempting to... attempting to do... attempting to investigate this inconsequential burglary at the Watergate Hotel, which... Um, ah, yes. As the, as the blurb goes turns out to have far-reaching consequences. Sure, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, you, 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 you've rang my bell there, Doc. I, I have seen that film. And because it's based largely on stuff that really happened and is very well documented, it has a role-playing game-type structure to it, as it is, because, I mean, one of the guys will get a lead and head out to investigate the lead. And sometimes it'll lead somewhere, but oftentimes it won't. Mm. And it's that thing that you know, typically even used to happen in tabletop RPGs, that you'd go down a passage and you'd fight the orc and cross the bridge and there was nothing there. And it's like, sure. oh, that was, that, that was clearly a red herring. That was a dead end. It's, so just a, side quest. it's a side quest, basically. Um, well, effectively, it's a mistake that you made. Mm. You, um, you believed a shady con man in a tavern and you paid to buy his stupid map and followed the stupid map and ha-ha, you got fooled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, very good. 
What have we, what have we been listening to this week, Doc? Um, lots and lots of things. Um, and I could easily spend an hour talking about it, but I don't intend to do that. Very specifically, I found a, not a lost album. Um, I found a slightly ignored, underwritten album by one of my beloved early to mid-80s um, Japanese pop idols, who's a lady named uh, Aranto Moko. Where in her career it came, but she, she she made an album that was I don't know whether it wasn't very well received, um, and I found a copy of it um, and listened to it, and half of it is not very good, and um, <coughs> half of it just a bit loopy. Yeah, and I don't know which half caused it to be not very well received. So did Adam Tomoko's fans not like it because of the part that just wasn't very good? Or did they not like it because of the half that was completely loopy? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one track, um, which I'll share with you afterwards. Um, and it answers a question that I don't think anyone even asked before. What would it sound like if Kate Bush joined Big Black? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, what a, what a um, combination that would be. I mean, two, two uh, artists that, you know, that are particularly close to my heart. Smash those together, Doc, and I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> interested. Um, and on the same subject of, you know, like, what would it sound like if mm-hmm. um, I acquired long ago from an acquaintance of mine um, a, um, a CD, which I was told, um, you must listen to this, it will change your mind, mm-hmm. um, of um, late period um, indie disco tracks sure. from the late 70s and early 80s. So effectively, after disco had ceased to be anything like a cutting edge force in music. Um, and if you follow the, 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 the accepted historical narrative, it had all been blanded out and whitened to fuck um, and straightened out as well. And there's this sort of pair of compilation CDs, um, and that their mission is obviously to sort of resurrect a whole bunch of tracks by some tiny studios and minor league artists who are sort of still, still keeping the flame of blackness and queerness mm-hmm. alive um, long after Rod Stewart had um, started doing disco songs. Sure. Uh huh. Do you think I'm? Uh, and there's one. Yeah. Um, answer no. Um, um, one of them, I imagine, answers once again a question that I don't think anyone ever asked ever. What would it sound like if um, Hawkwind and Spaceman Three collaborated with Donna Summer? Ah, um, absolutely awesome. Though. You're dropping some um, fucking great references. Brilliant. I'm loving this. Yeah. Um, and it's just this monstrous, I think, 12-minute long, one-chord hypnotic groove. Yeah. yeah. Um, and oh. it's that that literally makes me want to put on lame hot pants and, 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 and have an afro. <laughs> and we'd all like to see that, let's be honest. Um, I've been listening to 
Uh, a strange one for me, actually. You know, I think I've mentioned before that I'm listening to kind of an album a day on my way to and from work of stuff that I've never really given the time of day to. Of course, I've already banged on about my newfound love of Ultravox, the 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 originators of power metal. Would you believe? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, need, you need a job in marketing. I um, you, you, you need to write that as the catch copy for the, the poster for the release of their new album. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ultravox, the originators of power metal. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Um, this week, the, the, the notable album is by um, Florence and the Machine with an album called Lungs. You heard of these guys, Doc? Um, yes, I have. Uh-huh. Um, they, I, I saw them on... Um, like one of those, I always call them um, BAFTA fodder shows. Yeah, one of those like BBC Two music programs where um, they it, it's pretty much unapologetically an excuse to line up all of the people who are going to be up for a BAFTA that year. Sure, are, we, are you talking about like Jules Holland, something like that? Something it, it wasn't actually that, but something like that. Yeah, fair um, so effectively you can guarantee um an hour of music that it's in 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 its original form was putatively and sometimes actually edgy and challenging and difficult Mm um and so a la rod stewart as we were just talking about has been straightened out and whitened out and made acceptable to um to receive awards um so you're count on getting lots of rag and bone man and lots of stormzy and i saw florence and the machine and the machine on one of those programs mm. um i was um i was very impressed that um uh, a lady so mature um be sort of allowed anywhere near youth tv sure um and I was greatly impressed with the trackers. I wasn't impressed enough with it to go away and, and, and seek out some more. But yep. if, for instance, somebody, I happened to be around someone's house and they said, would you like to listen to this? I would say, yes, I would quite like to listen to that. Yeah, what I mean, you make of it? That's my takeaway, really, Doc. You know, I, I listened to the album. It, it was perfectly pleasant. It just kind of flowed over me. Um, nothing objectionable about it, really. Influences that really like, leapt out at me. Was you, you you kind of standard stadium, stadium kind of anthemic stuff really like U two, Coldplay, that kind of shit. You know, uh, no, you know nothing wrong with it, but it certainly doesn't grab me. Um, right, tell me, guess at the Tell me if you can take a guess at the track I heard because um, I did sort of roll my eyes a bit. Tell me if you know what this track is because <clears> it sounded like. The only the only way I can describe it is drug free Porter's head. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean that, that. You know that's certainly fair enough. Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine that. You know, being an influence too. I, I couldn't name the track. Doc, I've only listened to the album once. Um, yeah. So no, I can't do that. The track that stood out to me was one called um, "Kiss with a Fist." You hit me once, I hit you back You gave a kick, I gave a slap You smashed a plate over my head Then I set fire to our bed You hit me once, I hit you back You gave a kick, I gave a slap You smashed a plate over my head Then I set fire to our bed Oh, 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 o
Um, and there's just a great little couplet in there where she sings, a kick in the teeth is good for some, a kiss with a fist is better than none. I think they're just, you know, just really powerful words. Of course, you've already mentioned Big Black, but it brings to mind Fists of Love, doesn't it? Of course, straight away. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, a kiss with the fist. I am actually genuinely surprised um, mm. there wasn't a late '90s metallic hardcore band named Kiss with the Fist. Yeah, uh, I um, I think they could have supported Dropkick Murphys and Five Knuckle Shuffle. <laughs> Very good, Doc. Let, let's get on to chow time because unfortunately we've got quite a few today, Doc. I think we've got seven or eight. We, oh, we, really, we really must have fucked up last time. Um, so. The doc asked about bands named after real diseases, um, <laughs> <laughs> as, as is his one. <laughs> I, I floundered a bit, and in my flapping, I forgot about the mighty and powerful Impetigo doc. How could I forget? <laughs> oh, superb. <laughs> um, I've got 36 states in three different countries. My victims never knew what was going to happen. I've had shootings, knifings, strangulations, beatings, and I've participated in actual crucifixions of the humans. All across the country, there's people just like me who's set out to destroy human life. talked about um, decapitated and the fact that they were arrested it is true that they were arrested but I got my crimes mixed up the event that I described of the band being arrested because they pushed a fan off the stage you know who, who kind of got serious injuries that was Lamb of God actually not decapitated oh. um, decapitated were arrested but sadly on much graver charges um, and so here's the lowdown from Wikipedia. Give me a sec, Doc. I'm just going to open the page up. I forgot to do it. Um, <clears throat> so here we go, Doc. Uh, 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 so the heading, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, uh, 2017 rape and kidnapping charges. On the 9th of September 2017, all four members of Decapitated's lineup at the time um, were arrested in Santa Ana, California after a show and were charged with first-degree kidnapping in relation to an incident alleged to have happened after the band's performance at Spokane, Washington's The Pin, on the 31st of August 2017. During the alleged incident, two women were held in the band's tour bus against their will. Of the two women, one was able to escape, 
The other remained on the bus and later informed police that each member of the band raped her on the bus. The band released a statement on their Facebook page addressing their arrest, denying all allegations and announcing that the remaining dates of their tour had been cancelled due to the, quote, uncertainty regarding a timeline for prospective proceedings, end quote. After being extracted to Spokane, each band member was formally charged with rape in October 2017. Um, later in October, the band was released from jail, with each member reportedly paying $100,000 in bail and being required to surrender their passports. All charges were dropped by prosecutors in January 2018, citing the, quote, well-being of the victim, end quote, and the scheduled trial later that month was cancelled. The charges were dropped without prejudice, leaving the possibility of future charges open. So it's it's pretty sinister stuff, Doc, doc actually. You know, nothing to make light of, to be honest. Um, it's nothing to make light of in either direction now, is it? Because um, serious, uh, serious sexual assault is um, probably one of the last things in the world to make light of. Um, yeah. and false accusations of serious sexual assault are also nothing to laugh about either. Absolutely. Innocent till proven guilty and all that good stuff, you know, of course. Um, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing, though, because um, obviously being in the US, yeah. uh, that's, clearly a, uh, that's clearly a federal crime uh, if yeah. they were arrested in a different state. Oh, yes, yes. If you cross the state boundary, that... that, that, that that's that's when the FBI get involved, isn't it, Doc? That's right. I mean, I, yeah. um, I'd need someone who knows more about um, the US legal system. Yeah, um, I know a little bit too much, and I would assume, yeah, um, I would assume that would be an FBI job. Yeah, yeah. Um, next one. Uh, the Doc made reference to a track which he thought was called "Let's Let Loose the Killer Swans" by Mozzie. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, called Turn Loose the Swans. But, Doc, your title is way better. Of course, Killer Swans. <laughs> I, I, did actually, I did actually know it wasn't called Let Loose. Um, uh, but uh, that, was, uh, that was just what the track was universally referred to by everybody because um, it makes such a big deal about being so tragic and so sinister and so dark and so melancholy. Yeah. Um, and, then, and it's about... The, the title is apparently literally about letting some swans go. You know, it's, um, it's, um, it's the kind of thing Chris Packer might do um, on a lake in Wiltshire. Sure. You know, if he'd, if he'd found some abandoned signets and raised them by hand and now he was ready to return them to the wild. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were being, we were let's being, go, let's go and turn, let's go and turn these, turn, turn loose these swans. Yeah. And then, Say something sanctimonious about environmentalism. <laughs> oh, it, it's not you, is it, Doc, that keeps putting dead animals next to his fence, next to his gate? Uh, no. Um, no, it really isn't. Good. Um, we were being... The fucker doesn't show up nearly large enough on my radar to, for, for, for me to actually risk prosecution for. <laughs> I like it. I like it when the doc attacks a national treasure. It always, it warms my heart. Um, we were being ignorant about the tuning of cello strings. Remember this doc? We, we just didn't know, did we? Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, just for clarification, and starting from low, going to high, they are C, G, D, and A. So now we know, doc. Perverts. Perverts. In the Nocturnus special. 
we were talking about the James Whale radio show TV program. And we were both <laughs> hanging on about the fact that this was when late night Channel 4 TV was great. Trouble is, Doc, it was broadcast on ITV. We got it wrong. Goodness gracious me. How about that? You know what? I really like it when I really like it when I turned out to have made a mistake and the correct answer makes me feel good about the world. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You would ever, uh, I mean, you watch ITV nowadays, mm -hmm. the actually puddle of feces that it is. Yeah. And who would ever have imagined that ITV would ever have broadcast anything as radical as the James Well radio show? I know. Um, but, but, you know, remember ITV, you know, kind of around the same time of pumping out stuff like Hot Metal, weren't they? Uh, well, um, ITV was arguably um, sort of until the late 80s, ITV was arguably always more radical than at least BBC One. Sure. Not more radical than BBC Two, but ITV was always took more chances. Yeah. Um, and it did its fair share of reactionary crap as well. Um, yeah. But ITV always took more chances with um, at least science fiction, um, a lot with children's programming, um, and a very great deal with, like you said, with situation comedy as well. Sure, yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it's easy to forget, even though putatively I know that Children of the Stones was made for ITV and broadcast on ITV. almost can't imagine it being the same thing because I can't imagine ITV since the year 2000 touching anything like that with barge pole. No, I think you're quite right, Doc. I think you're quite right. Um, it's a very diff different animal these days. Uh, three to go. We were pontificating about where the name death metal came from. And I'm going to dig in. We've got two contenders uh, probably tying in first place and either one is just as likely as the other. And in fact, it's probably a combination of the two. Here's a good summary from our friends down at, at Loudwire, sorry, explaining why. Uh, here's the quote. Death, led by the pioneering Chuck Schuldiner, formed in 1983 as Mantis and released their first demo, Death by Metal. <laughs> Thank you. 
on September the 7th, 1984, before changing their name and reissuing the demo. Clearly, that means that death metal was directly named after death, right? Not so fast. Blazing satanic San Francisco band Possessed started in 1983 as well. And their 1984 demo was actually called Death Metal. those two things together and the name of the genre is born what do we think doc um i'm always interested in stuff like this now uh, i've got a couple of things to comment um in a country as big as the u.s mm-hmm. um and with california and florida being pretty far apart um i can imagine that the same expression came from two different sources yeah uh, point number two i'm always wary about cultural uh, cultural retconning like this. Um, I mean, the um, there are little phenomenae of this kind, and I actually call I, I, I call them chavs nowadays um, mm-hmm. because it is apparently now quote unquote well understood that chav is um, an acronym for council house and violet. No, it isn't. No, um, but that, 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 isn't that called a backronym where you know where where, where you know like retrospectively in, invent the, the meaning. Yeah, um, I mean, um, it's for those who wish to know, um, it was a regional expression. The the local version we had was Chava. Um, I don't actually know what part of the country the word Chava originated in, but I mean, depending on whether you're in Newcastle or Glasgow, you'd call them Steaks or Neds or... Yeah, um, Neds yeah, Ned is a Scottish version, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, 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 and once again, that's got um, a backronym now. Um, that apparently means not educated. Oh, really? Oh yes, yeah, but um, clearly that's no, not I don't. I, I, I don't think it. I don't think it ever did. Um, but yeah. so I don't think it's out of the question that the expression death metal came from at least two, maybe even more different sources. Uh-huh. On the other hand, possessed are one of those bands who keep on being revealed as being very, very influential. I don't think they were ever particularly popular at the time. Um. But it seems like everyone who passed through the ranks of Possessed mm-hmm. went on to become um, a really quite influential figure um, in their own right. Um, here's something for Chow next week, because I need to go and research this. Um, I know Larry Lalonde, uh, who's the best-known guitarist in Primus, passed through Possessed at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. I mean that first possessed. I can't remember the title of it, but that first possessed album really. I mean, if you've got if you've got interest in the origin of of death metal, you know how it kind of sprang from thrash. Go listen to that first possessed album. It's absolutely fucking awesome. Yeah, they're, they're one of these bands who I don't think were very well known even in their own lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. But they just turn out to like not just them as a band, but everyone who's been in them turns out to have become a massively influential person. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, I said 
the black metal didn't really get going until 91 or 92. Doc, I was dead wrong. Mayhem, get this, Mayhem were releasing demos as far back as 1986. And Bathory... Oh, sorry, hang on, on, Doc. And Bathory predate even that, pumping out a self-titled album in 1984. So like a proper album, never mind just a demo. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's necessary to sort of put some historical perspective because we're talking about like 30 years ago plus, 35 yeah. years ago. Mayhem had been making records since definitely since 1985. Um, I believe um, Death Crush came out as an actual record with a real sleeve and everything in Yes, absolutely. Bathory had made the black metal album a couple of years before that. Um, These things had no influence or reach beyond their tiny little local scenes or a few hundred people in the rest of the world who could be bothered to spend money on spec on a completely unknown quantity. I've been, I I was around serious, serious, serious metalheads from 89 onwards, including your good self. Uh-huh. And none of those people were ever even vaguely aware of black metal as a thing, as a scene, et cetera, et cetera, um, pretty much um, until um, until the church burnings and the murders started. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think my I think my first real kind of awareness was was through Mayhem. And it was when um, their first album, The Mysterious Storm Satanas drops and that's 1994 doc you know so yeah the, well, the mind plays tricks doesn't it based into like chronologically yeah. to keep in the spirit of the 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 mysterious de mayhem um <laughs> the mysterious was Arguably their first oblique stroke, second oblique stroke, third oblique stroke, fourth album, depending on whether or not you consider Live in Leipzig to be a real album.
consider Death Crush to be um, a real album or a mini LP, and depending on whether or not you consider Dawn of the Black Hearts to be a real album or uh, a bootleg. Well, that's great. I'll tell, well, I'll tell you how Encyclopedia Metallum categorised them. Death Crush, they they they, they categorised as a demo um, in 1987. But then there is another Death Crush, which is categorised as an EP. Live in Leipzig, they categorised as a live album. The Mysterious Don Sedanus is full-length album. And then The Dawn of the Black Hearts in 1995, so actually after the drop oh. full-length, um, they, 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 you know, they, they categorise it as a live. Of course, then you know they're they're not God, but but I think they're a good indication. These guys. Yeah. So I, I think the conclusion we're reaching is this is obviously this might have been the last real, true pre-internet underground scene. There were underground scenes afterwards, obviously, but I think this is the last time that an underground scene propagated globally without the possibility of the influence of the internet at all. Yeah, it's a great, really, really great point. Because I was kind of going to counter with like the Gothenburg stuff, but you know, maybe the maybe the internet had kicked in by that point. Um, but Gothenburg is a much bigger city. It's close. It's it's much closer culturally and geographically to a lot of other big cities. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the question to drive from Gothenburg, like to Stockholm or to some places in Germany. You've got easy access to a lot of Northern Europe. Yeah, that's true. No, Norwegian black metal was so completely out there on its own. I mean, even, even the three or four main bands didn't even live in the same town in Norway. Yeah. And uh, this is... I think the reason that so many of the dates get mixed up and there's such uncertainty about so many of the dates, obviously not much of the stuff was categorized except possibly by Euronymous who wrote everything down obsessively, uh-huh. but most of his, most of his diaries and his personal documentation disappeared after he uh-huh. died. Sure. Um, so even what people think of as being the real information is, is, is very sketchy. Sure. Um, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of the people who have the definitive answers to these questions, honestly, a lot of them are dead. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, dead or mad, aren't they, basically? Yes. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, last correction here. Uh, we, we, me and the doc made a right old balls up between us. Um, the doc confused the Andromeda strain with a film that I claimed was called the Medusa strain. 
starring Richard Burton. The film is, of yeah. course, the Medusa Touch. Doc, we really fucked that one up, didn't we, Doc? What a team we are. What a team. If you're going to make mistakes, and if you're going to display your ignorance in public, you may as well make, you may as well make a job of it now, haven't you? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so we did great. Doc, I think we've, we've ran really long there because of the, because that was a big old chow time, motherfuckers. I think we dropped the topic this week and get into the track because we've got a fucking track to talk about, haven't we? Definitely. Don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slatanicvercast at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Do it now. Okay, welcome to part two of the show. Here, we're going to play the track as usual, pause it from time to time and chat about it. Today's track is, of course, track number one from Slayer's fifth album, Seasons in the Abyss. And the track title is the one and only War Ensemble. Here we go. Trying to make a point, Doc. What do you think? Um, yeah, it, it, it could be. Do you think there could be like something of a statement of intent coming out? Yeah, there? not off. Yeah, not off. Um, do you think they might be attempting to connote that this this new record, this new album, might contain elements of aggression and intensity? Do you think they might be trying to <laughs> foreshadow that? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? You know. Um, obviously we discussed in great detail the south of heaven in our overview um episode but you know but my takeaway from that album was this kind of tailing off softening um you know kind of almost like a bit limp a bit lame and 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 clearly here they they just want to smack you in the face and go forget that forget that we're back yeah. Um, as you know, um, I thought South of Heaven also opened with a statement of intent, and I thought it was a great statement of intent. Yeah. And one of my big problems with that album ended up being that it didn't follow up on it. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the, the atmospheric space, that, 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 that's what you were disappointed by, wasn't it? That, you, know, you know, kind of yeah. creeping, crawling, dread-filled atmospherics. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I think we can probably assume that Slayer themselves realised that they had fallen off a cliff in the second half of their previous album mm. um, in a pretty major way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's where we are at the start of this one. Um, here we are. It's, let me tell you something as well. This is really, really hard to play this opening section. I, I can play it. But it's right at the right at the cusp of my ability. It's it, it, it's fantastic fun to play, but it takes some fucking practice, and you've got to be super warmed up. Um, you, you, you just the rapidity and the accuracy necessary. Yeah, they're, they're on one. They're on a charge. Let's, let's, let's see what happens next. Scotch rotting through the night in bloody misery. Scotch as a 
killer. That riff underneath the verse. Dun, 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 dun. Wow. And those Scots. Man alive, Doc. Man alive. I'm all the tingle. So, effectively, what we've got here is a fairly classic Slayer formula, um, but just better. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, is this... Uh, I, I don't know whether the Slayer fans in general have, like, um, a, a, a rating scale for the Slayerness <laughs> of... <laughs> the Slayerosity of something. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like, the... the, um, the the coefficient of slayerness is a particular trap. <laughs> I love it, Jack. I love it. What uh, a addictive you just created. Oh, no, no, that's a noun. Yeah. When English teacher, I should be ashamed. That's a noun. Yeah, great. Um, so um, I'm going to call it the um, small C, capital S. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly with a diacritic over the C. Uh, mm-hmm. The small C, capital S, um, which is, I, I have now decided, is an SI unit, the coefficient sure. of slayerosity. Sure, very good. I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, which um, runs on a scale of um, zero being, um, well, obviously, uh, dissident aggressor, and 666 being angel of death. Um, it's, so it's, is, it's got to be 666. Definitely. Um, is this track considered to have a particularly high coefficient of slayerosity? Well, I think this is Max, isn't it? You know, I think you've got yeah. you've got Angel of Death, and you've got this, and they're they're the two tracks, aren't they? That that, that hit the six 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 on the Slayer Osti scale. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> So, Doc, yeah. clearly, Tom has reverted back to just kind of shouty vocals, and what a blessed relief it is. I can't hate anyone, and I can't particularly criticise anyone for trying to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I can criticise someone for not realising that that thing they tried to do is maybe not the best thing they should have tried to do, and, and, and probably they should stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Experiment, interesting but failed. Situation now resolved, good. Um, yeah, that's what I've got to say about that. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. I've got no problem with, with you know, with Tom trying it out on on the South of Ever album, and I think it does kind of suit in general. It suited the the vibe of that album, even though it's not particularly to my taste. Um, I'm just relieved he, he he's kind of got it out of his system. And he's just back to sc- just back to shouting, basically. That's what I want to hear yeah. Tom Array do. I just want to hear him shout, Doc. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I do. And since I've been doing really, really badly at this game, mm. um, I'm not. I'm not just going to toss a coin. Mm-hmm. 
I am going to say I think that one was Kerry. Oh, it's a Jeff stuck. It's a Jeff. Oh my God, we've kicked off uh, sad. We've we've kicked off seasons with the uh, with the same form as we ended sad. Is that Goodness right? gracious. I mean, it's literally, <laughs> literally, we, 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 we're entering the realm of statistical improbability, aren't we now, with this game? Absolutely. <laughs> it's crazy. Maybe I should just start tossing coins. <laughs> Here we go. Listen to Dave go. Listen to Dave Lombardo. What a fucking legend. Are you perceiving, and this, at this point in their career, where they were just getting more and more and more popular and presumably had bigger and bigger and bigger studio budgets, do you perceive a marked and, like I say, intentional coarseness to the production of the drums on this? Well, I think it's true of the drums, and I think it's also true of the guitar sounds. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, there's no doubt that, the, you know, I mean, the, 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 we, we've seen it throughout the five albums that, we, you know, that we've covered so far, you know, the step up in, in production values between each one. The biggest jump probably came between uh, Hello Waits and, and Raining Blood, obviously, <laughs> because, you know, they changed record label and, and Rick Rubin basically, it seems like they kind of just gave him like a blank check, basically. Um didn't merely give them a blank check to rent a studio. He did the job himself. Exactly. And yeah, you're right. He was hands-on, wasn't he? Of course, he was the producer. Yeah. Um, but then again, there, you know, there is a clear elevation in production standards onto South of Heaven. But it, it, it almost went too far. You know, thinking about the, the sound of South of Heaven, it's almost too clear it's too clinical it's too precise it's too studio sterile as it were and i think i think you're dead right doc i think here it's because of course it's ruben again i think this is an attempt to just add just add that just that spike and nastiness and almost kind of lo-fi in a really high-fi production just to give it that bit of just that bit of edge doc um I always think of this as um, an example of uh, Rocky's rule of crap gyms. Go on. Oh, um, in Rocky films, when Rocky gets too much money um, and he gets lazy and, 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 he has, and he gets to train in a really nice gym mm. in his boxing stars, uh, <laughs> but whenever Rocky has to train by, like, um, punching carcasses in, um, in a slaughterhouse... He's an abattoir, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
Yeah, or, or, or kind of running up the side of a mountain. Yeah, in uh, in in the Soviet Union, then his boxing improves greatly. So uh, <laughs> that's that's what I've come to think of as um, you know, even no evidence for this in the real world. Um, like the, the the worse and the nastier your facilities are yeah. that you have to train, and the, the better performance you'll. That's brilliant. You'll I absolutely love that. I love that. Here we go. <laughs> In my head, when I think of war ensemble, it's just like a blazing flashathon. But of course, there is this this kind of middle section where they where they do slow it down. They put a, took a bit of groove in, you know. That that riff, it's a, it's a really interesting riff to play actually, because it's 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 you know the single finger picking stuff going on, and then you just kind of intersperse it with three chords. But the three chords change each time, and it's really hard to remember. We, you know, we've got which which order to play the to play the chords in so it's it surprisingly challenging from a memory perspective um but yeah i always kind of forget about this part of the track but that is not to say it's bad because i think it's fucking great oh yeah mm. <laughs> As a band, don't you think, Doc, to structure your song oh. in that way, the way that they kind of break out of that of that midsection back into they're going to hit a solo section and then we're going to go back into the verse, but to break out in that way to structure it like that, I think it's you know I mean brave you know I know it's a silly word to use when you're just writing music, but I think it's brave, Doc. Um, so it's kind of I'm not disagreeing with you. But this is that kind of thing is one of the reasons that Slayer have always been head and shoulders above all their contemporaries, and it's um, it is brave and it is courageous. But I I expect it of them by now. Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I would be. I I still appreciate it when they do it, but I'm almost at the stage now that I'd be disappointed if they didn't do something eccentric or unusual or yeah innovative. Because what they do basically. You know, for you know anyone listening that isn't, you know, isn't a, a musician of any kind, they just they just hit the E chord there. They hit they hit an open E, and then palm mute it straight after they've hit it, and they do it sixteen times, and the drums follow it, and then we get like the you know the pick score the the, the, the pick slide, and and then we're going to burst into into the. I've ne I've never heard anything like it before, 
or since. I, th I think it's one of those things, kind of, they've done it, so now nobody else can. Um, and there's a, a lyrical component that there's, there's a mimetic component to that as well, which we'll talk sure. about when we get on to the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Here we go. We've got about a uh, minute and a quarter to go. Should we just play the track out, Doc? What do you reckon? Yes, let's. Let's do that. <laughs> So there we go. That was track one from Smash Fifth Album, Seasons in the Abyss, of course, entitled War Ensemble. Doc, what a fucking opening track. What a way to start an album. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, addresses and redresses so many questions all at once. Mm. Um, and let's go through them one by one. Um, what's this album going to be like then? Is it going to be any good? Uh -huh. uh, what are they going to do to acknowledge recognition and then apply correction of some of the mistakes they made on their previous album? Mm -hmm. um, and um, what will the new direction for Slayer be like? Now, obviously, this song fools you into thinking that it's answering question number three. It doesn't. No, you're uh, right. I agree with that. Yeah, certainly. Um, but I do think it answers question number one and question number two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I like that point you make there, Doc, about that, like, like, like the corrective nature of it. They, they clearly knew that they'd fucked up a little bit, you know, on the back, on the back end of, of, of the last album. I know I'm more irritated about this than you are, um, but <clears throat> it's, it, 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 this track is, is just a perfect response, isn't it? Yeah, all right, guys, we got it wrong a bit. You know, we're still kind of proud of those songs, but we got it a bit wrong, and now this is this is our trajectory from this point forward. How long do you think it takes before an artist, any artist, an author or a musician or a member of a band? Because at, the, at that point in their career, when they made the previous album, um, I'm not saying they could have written three new songs in the time, but they could have made... So that they had the budget and they had the time to make certain decisions to sort of ameliorate the, 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 the slight clusterfuck uh -huh. of the second half of that previous album. Um, I'm assuming that they didn't because... I'm assuming they didn't, not because of indifference. I'm assuming they didn't do that because they thought they had a really good album. Mm. I don't think anyone... I don't think anyone 
sets out to make a bad album. Sure. Got notable exceptions. I mean, um, the most infamous one that I know about is um, Yes, Please by Happy Mondays, mm-hmm. um, which um, has one track which actually contains the lyric, which is Sean Ryder mumbling the word tickle, yeah, fudge, fudge, tickle, yeah. And <laughs> at the end when the track stops and he goes, will this do? Oh, yeah, brilliant, yeah. I, do, I, can, think <laughs> one, I can think of one example. There's um, a, a, a kind of thrashy metalcore band called Shadows Fall, American. <laughs> And they were um, kind of in, in, in bitter dispute with their label. And they... By the way, sorry about this. You're not allowed to mention contract ob- uh, contractual obligation albums because... Oh, oh so, yeah, so it's one of those, basically. And, you know, and they, and they kind of yeah. told their fans not, not to buy it. Um, you, you yeah. know, we've got to do this. Don't bother buying it. Wait for the next one. I mean, the, the most infamous example of that is um, Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music. Even though he made it, um, can you believe this, mate? Even though he made it after taking a shitload of heroin, not Lou um, Reed, never. Hard to believe. And told everyone it was a contractual obligation album. Um, yeah. It's since gone on to become an industrial classic. Right. Um, yeah. Everyone knows about those, but I mean, I I don't think. Um, anyone who hasn't got a really expensive habit to support deliberately goes into a studio and makes an album that they believe from the bottom of their heart is bad. No, of course not. I certainly it's, it's don't not, believe no. it. No, it, it, it's just not in so, the kind of creative mindset, is it? No. Um, you know, I mean, because, I mean, they, they knew they were going to have to tour the stuff. They knew they were going to have to look people in the face while they played it. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew they weren't getting out of that. And so how, how long do you think it takes for an artist or a creative person to realise that they've done some work that isn't their best? Well, I suppose, you know, um, I, I presume it's when, it's when you actually get on the road and you start playing it and you see the kind of audience response. You know, if, if, if you've played that track, let's say, I don't know, let's say 10 gigs in a row over the space of two weeks or three weeks, 
And each time that, you know, that's the moment when the energy fucking drains out of the room. That's going to clear you up pretty quick, isn't it, Doc? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose if you're Slayer uh, at the height of their powers at the end of the 80s and you play, you play all the material from the new album and at the end of the, at the, end of the show there is merely one, the, the floor is merely one inch deep in blood as opposed to the expected four inches, <laughs> Yeah, then yeah. <coughs> that's how you know. Yeah, so you know, so that's that's my answer to your question. Basically, I think it's as soon as you get out and start touring the the, the fucking stuff. Um, I think that's when you realise. So, um, <clears throat> here's a question which I'm going to ask you again next. <clears throat> I might even weave this into topic of the week next week when we do yeah. this. Um, do you think it's possible for a band to remain relevant and cutting edge and vibrant um, if they don't tour? That's a, that's a really, really great question. I mean, so, you know, certainly we go back to the Beatles and they seem to manage it, yeah. didn't they? I think they're generally considered to have got good once they got uh, once they stopped touring. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, other than that, though, I'm, I am struggling. I can't think of, a, of like a non-touring band that really, you know, kind of kept their, their vibrancy. Now, I, I think the answer is no, Doc. Well, think about it, and we'll take it. Uh, we'll, we'll take it up again in um, maybe in topic of the week next week or in the future. Because I think it's an interesting question. I, I totally agree. Uh, should we move on to the lyrics, Doc? <laughs> Welcome to part three of the show, which we sometimes call "Evil Speak," uh, but we're not going to call it that today, Doc. Um, here. We read through and dissect the lyrics that Tommy's generally screaming in our direction. Um, here we go, verse one. Propaganda, death ensemble, burial to be, corpse rotting through the night in blood-laced misery, scorched earth the policy, the reason for the siege, the pendulum, it shaves the blade, the strafing air, blood raid. Oh, the only about Doc is World War II, eh? Um, I um, well, clearly, um, but which bit? Um, mm. so I'm assuming it's some part of the war in which the Blitzkrieg was employed. <clears throat> um, Slayer have a fascination with the Battle of Stalingrad, as we know. Well, I think, um, I mean, that's my suspicion, actually. I, I think that's what this track is about, is the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, I had a suspicion, um, not a strong one. Um, mm. I toyed with the idea that it was um, actually about the, um, the invasion of Greece. Oh, go on, Doc. I, I don't know much about that. You know, I, I mean, let's be, let, you know, to be candid, dear listener, you know, I think the Doc's kind of going to take the lead on, the, on, on, on these lyrics because his, his knowledge of World War II... I'm no novice, but, but the doc is much more in-depth than I am. I wouldn't assert the correctness of this against absolutely anyone. Um, the invasion of Greece was a, a fairly small-scale thing yeah. on the scale of battles during the middle of World War II. Um, and it's generally notable for... Um, it, it was uneven um, with the Nazis having the upper hand in terms of air superiority and weapons. Mm -hmm. um, but it's generally notable that 
the Nazis absolutely did not have an easy time of it. Um, yeah. They successfully uh, invaded Greece um, and they suppressed the indigenous population, um, but they were made to work for it very, very right. hard. Okay, yeah, so it was no easy victory. Uh, and um, it's sort of one of those cases where um, a lot of techniques of modern air superiority and, mod and, and modern aerial warfare were deployed. And I, I'm not saying the Nazis were shy about harming the civilian population, but they did attempt to do things such as using very lightweight dive bombers to put bombs directly into machine gun emplacements, um, as opposed to carpet bombing whole cities. Sure. And this was partly, I, I, I'm not trying to say that the Nazis were trying to be humane, I don't think they did that, but their supply lines were stretched out and their industrial capability was being stretched a great deal in, in other parts of the war. Um, and I don't necessarily think they had the capability to to just flatten places. And, and, and I mean, you mentioned like the, you know the supply line being you know stretched. It's it's a fair old jaunt, isn't it, from Berlin to Athens? You know. Um, yes, it is. And I mean, if you're trying to get over land, it's mountains and rough terrain all the mm. way. Mm. Um, and if you're trying, and if you're trying to do it by sea. You have to get through the hot, well, the, the British controlled Straits of Gibraltar, and then you have to get through the very hotly contested Mediterranean, which is no pushover either. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to get into another very hotly contested part of the world. You're mm -hmm. in Greece, you've got Yugoslavia, which has Soviet support at the back. Oh, sorry, Doug, go on. No, I was just going to say no, no part of that campaign is going to be a pushover. Yeah. Yeah. What does that first line mean, Doc? Propaganda, death ensemble. I mean, obviously, all the words are, are, are clear, but what, what do you extract from that, those first three words? This is one of the things that made me think it, it probably, it, it might not be about Greece. Yeah. Um, and made me, in fact, think it might be about the, uh, the invasion of Poland. Right. Uh -huh. In 1939. Yeah. Um, and the speed and efficacy with which the Blitzkrieg techniques um, enabled the, the Nazi war machine, uh, the, the, the Wehrmacht um, as a composite entity to achieve victory in very, very short spaces of time. Now, have I got my dates right here, Doc? This is what, you know, just from memory, the Nazis invaded Poland on September the, the 1st, I think, 39, and, and, and Britain and France kind of collaboratively declared war against them on the 3rd of September. Is that correct? Does that sound about right? Yes. Um, yeah, well, that was, the, that was the kind of arbitrary line in the sound. Mm. But um, if you've ever seen, there's, there's a Roadrunner cartoon um, very, very obviously parodying this, that yeah. um, Wiley, yeah. Wiley Coyote draws a line in the sand and the Roadrunner steps over it, and right. Wiley Coyote draws another line in the sand and, and, and the, and the roadrunner steps over it and goes beep, beep. <laughs> and Wally Coyote kept, keeps stepping, kept, keeps taking backward steps until, can you guess what happens, mate? But does he fall off a cliff? Yes. Yeah, yeah, how about that? <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah. And um, I think that the, there are a, a, a lot of noisy politicians saying things like the invasion of, of, of Poland is the line in the sand that must not be crossed. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another thing. I, I, given this first line, I'm inclined to believe that that's what it's uh, it's more about. Um, 
So the propaganda that's referenced is like the prop propaganda of the spiel coming out of the, out of the politicians' mouths. Um, yeah, and which at the time didn't, by no means look like, did by no means look like empty propaganda. Um, mm -hmm. It looked like a bunch of people who were absolutely prepared and able to stand on the threats they, that they were making. Sure. Uh, if we decide we're going to fuck with you, you're going to get fucked with. The other line that intrigues me, because everything else is, seems pretty clear, it's that, that line there, the pendulum, it shaves the blade. What does that mean, Doc? It's a reference to The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I kind of got that. Any time a, a pendulum is invoked, it's got to be The Pit and the Pendulum, hasn't it? But, but how does it relate here? What, what, what's the context of Specifically, it, it shaves the blade. I, if, if I remember correctly, the, the, the pendulum has um, a grinding stone at, one, yeah. at, 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 at each end of its arc, mm -hmm. which um, the blade brushes against, and it keeps it nice and sharp as it, it swings sharp? backwards. And yeah. And obviously the pit and the pendulum is one of these very, very baroque methods. It seems to me to be a pretty terrible method of torture, honestly. As to how it relates to the application of Blitzkrieg, you know, the, using the pit and the pendulum to get someone to capitulate or to torture someone is obviously supposed to be a, an agonizing and incremental process. Um, the Blitzkrieg is more like snapping your enemy's neck before they've even noticed. Sure, um, yeah. So, no, I don't get it either. No, I get the no. reference. No, you know, you know, because I think of like an air raid, um, you know, like, like, like the Luftwaffe kind of strafing and, and, and blanket bombing Coventry or London, and you know, and the British, the Royal Air Force, responding in kind over like Dusseldorf and Dresden, these kind of places. Yeah, it's um, so. Here is another thing it might refer to, and maybe it isn't the pit and the pendulum at all. Um, a very important part of air superiority during the Blitzkrieg was, I've never heard this called pendulum bombing. I've heard it, toss bomb, I've heard it called toss bombing or cricket bombing. Uh -huh. uh, and a very small, lightweight, basically a big fighter with a small bomb load, yeah. um, is um, that the, the pilot is trained to execute a, a, a swinging pendulum. Um, so a, a very sharp dive and then to release the bomb maybe as low as 50 or 60 feet over the ground. Mm. So the bomb will continue in its trajectory like a big artillery shell. And with training, you can very accurately hit a modestly sized target. So you could, in theory, um, put a bomb into a single troop concentration or into a single factory. Sure. Um, the Blitzkrieg was not necessarily associated with the large-scale carpet bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was associated with these precision bombing, effectively using aircraft that could carry bombs as a very light, very mobile form of heavy artillery. Does that uh -huh. make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does, Doc. And it's beautifully expl explained. And, and for the listeners, you know, the Doc actually used like a ruler or something to, to, to actually demonstrate it to me. It's absolutely wonderful, Doc. Love that. Uh, do you want to move on to those two? Infiltration push reserves encircle the front lines. Supreme art of strategy playing on the mines. Bombard till submission, take it to their graves. Indication of triumph, the number that are dead. 
this particular verse seems pretty clear to pretty clear to me. There's no ambiguity here, is there? It's just kind of describing the strategy. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> the, the, the the interesting bit is that there seems to be an element of like judgment at the end there. You know, like isn't it silly? The, the, you know, the, the way that you fucking politicians, you fucking government source, you militaristic types, the only thing you care about is how many people you've just massacred. And that's how you know that you've done well, basically. But I mean, this, this, is, this is Slayer being contemporary as well. Um, and this, this, this is one of the reasons that sort of Slayer deserved to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, this is at a point in actual history um, where uh, military strategists would use, and politicians would, would, would parrot these phrases on the news, and they would talk about, uh, they, they, they had expressions like megadeths and overkill. So oh, yeah. they would talk about a, a, a nuclear munition, um, and physicists will talk about megatons, so the yield in the equivalent weight of TNT. And military strategists and politicians would talk about the, the capability of a nuclear weapon in terms of megadeths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, megadeth and, mega and overkill aren't just two substandard thrash bands, are they? they're, they're, Those terms actually no. come from military strategy. Yeah, from, from um, Pentagon think tank. And, and you, you could hear a, a really silly statement like, um, you know, um, using a... Uh, using a 10 mega death weapon um, against a city of a million people um, is overkill. Because you can kill 10 million people with that weapon, but there's only 1 million people in the city, so it's a waste of money. Sure, yeah. And, and those kind of calculations, I guess, I mean, it, seems, it sounds callous and inhumane, but I suppose, you know, you're fighting a war against a merciless enemy. What choice have you got, Doc? Um, you haven't, and I mean, that's why um, you come back to this, this last couplet here, indication of triumph, the number that are dead. Um, it sounds crass, and it is crass, but it's also kind of true. And that's kind of why I said, unusually, like Slayer being a, a little bit, I mean, maybe, maybe judgmental's too strong, but there's definitely like a, a bit of, a, a bit of, like, you know, they're kind of giving it the snide eye a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think this is, it's a judgment on, we'll say, 20th century war in general, because up until then, up until World War I, um, the purpose of war was to capture territory or capital assets. Um, if you could do that bloodlessly, um, then you'd probably do that. So if you could terrify the enemy with your mighty cavalry, and if you could send, them in, send your cavalry into their city and either take over their city or take over a portion of it, um, then hopefully what they would do is send someone out with a white flag and call for negotiations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think it was until maybe parts of the Napoleonic Wars, maybe parts of the Crimean War, uh, but I don't think it was until you got to World War I that you, you measured the success of your campaign in how many corpses you left behind. Mm. Mm. That's great, Doc. Let's have a look at the chorus here. Support the war, war support, the sport is war, total war, when victories are massacre, 
The final swing is not a drill. It's how many people I can kill. It's an extension on the theme, isn't it, basically? But but I do love this, you know, that the, they're invoking this idea that it's a game, basically, you know, referring to it as a sport. Um, and again, it kind of ties into what you were saying, you know, your wonderful description about that kind of pendulum bombing. The final swing is not a drill. How many people I can kill? So I can imagine that aeroplane with the, you know, that bomb arcing underneath it and, you know, yeah. and like set off on a parabola, you know, towards the target. Yeah, absolutely great, Doc. You've you, you painted pictures in my, in my head with that description, Doc. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so we've got this reference to um, uh, the sport is war, total war. I don't know where this phrase originated, um, but there was a phrase in use at least after the Korean War, which was uh, war is a sport played by rich men using poor men's sons. Sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've I've heard that crop up a lot. Mm. Uh, and I mean that 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 allusion would not have fallen on deaf ears amongst people who listen to Slayer records. Mm-hmm. Um, the final swing is not a drill. It's how many that I, I believe, and this is a bit of supporting evidence that it's about Stalingrad. Um, that I believe is a reference to General Sivarov, um, who famously said that uh, when, when when he was asked why he was such a bastard to his recruits. Um, and his answer was, uh, a hard drill makes an easy fight. Um, so did he, he basically kind of practice, 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 and, 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 and you get really good at the killing stuff. You get really good at the killing stuff and you get dehumanised as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you've made your recruits practice hand-to-hand fighting on each other, and do bayonet practice on pigs and on POWs, <clears throat> yeah. um, then they won't hesitate to kill. Yeah. Mm. Kind of goes, it, it's kind of like the contrary thought process. Was it mandatory suicide on, on the last album where... Seem to be yes. from the perspective of like a Nazi soldier who's having real kind of guilt and, and moral problems with, with with the things he'd either seen or done. Yeah, and I mean, it, if it turns out that, that this is about Stalingrad, well, obviously the um, the Soviets were not moral were, were not moral or ethical giants themselves. Mm. Um, uh, one of the reasons that um, Smirsch, the execution branch of the, the MGB, was created. And they had a motto, which is, um, the enemy is not competent. If you advance, the bullet may miss you. If you retreat, the bullet will never miss you. Mm-hmm. In other yep. words, um, it's, a- it's actually safer to go forward. Mm-hmm. That is quite a truth. Let's move on to the next section. Quite a long section here, Doc. You're a fallen wall. Be 
Dead fiend from above, when darkness falls, descend into my sights your fallen walls. Spearhead break through the lines flanked all around, soldiers of attrition forward their ground. Regime prophetic age, old in its time, flowing veins run on through deep in the Rhine. Center of the web, all battle scored. What is our war crime, era forevermore? war yeah so some 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 great words here um and, and i think that you know we're kind of getting a little bit more i don't know a little bit more um poetic i suppose a little bit more illusory yeah so i i mean it, it goes through three clear influences mm. uh, be a friend from above when darkness falls i mean that, that that's that's blakey that's right. that's that's someone who that's someone who's read some william blake that is mm. fair enough yeah. Can you can, can, can can give us a... Oh, sorry, Doc. Can you, can you name a poem? Anybody interested might be able to go and read. Um, can I look one? There's a very specific line that I have in mind, and yeah, I'll check, check that up in Chow next week. Yeah, sure. It goes on through some very recognisable um, UK World War One poetry. Um, Flanked soldiers of attrition forward their ground. Um, regime prophetic age, old in its time. It sounds very Wilfred Owen. Uh, very mm. secret, very secret assassin to me. Sure. Um, and then you go on to something that I think is supposed to be redolent of um, Himmler propaganda. Um, so flowing veins run on through deep in the Rhine. That it's it's a reminder of this very very real um, physical geographical nationalism, um, which was absolutely central to German National Socialism. Um, we are Germany and Germany is us. Sure. Um, we, will make, we will make the whole world into an extension of Germany, but Germany will still be the centre of the web. Um, sure. And the water of the Rhine is no different to the blood of a true German. It's such a wonderful line, that centre of, deep in the Rhine, centre of the web. It's, it's so evocative. Um, you know, because... Obviously, it invokes images of of, of spiders, um, you know, and 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 spiders' webs, and like this kind of spiraling network of, I suppose, you know, something evocative and suggestive of evil, basically. Um, it's evocative and suggestive of of, of evil, but it's also, um, I mean, a, a spider's web is also a habitat. Mm -hmm. sure. um, and it's also a means of production. It's where a spider lives, and it's what it uses to obtain its food. Yeah. So um, I think you have this this very very nice allusion to the um, presumably the the Nazi leadership, which is the spider, which is this 
poisonous thing. But what it mostly does is, is squats motionless mm-hmm. in the center of its area of influence. And it's got these threads that radiate outwards and the spider in the middle can sense the vibration at any part of it. That's right. And um, it, it knows where food is, it knows where trouble is. But in the end, the web, so the, the Nazi quest, the Nazi ambition was for Lebensraum or, 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 or room to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was considered sacred was, was, was Heimat or home. Um, so there was always this notion that um, the Third Reich was a place to live. It was a home. It wasn't just, let's say in the British or French conception, it wasn't just a set of foreign colonies that could be exploited and run down. Mm-hmm. Um, those people really believed that they were expanding the German homeland and through the, their great gift would be that everyone in the world would eventually get the right to be a German sure. and, uh-huh. live in, and, um, and live in Germany yeah. um, and thereby uh, come to half his senses of humour. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, that, yeah. Was, that was going to be their great gift to the world. Yeah. Everybody can, um, can, can write secrets. What's it called? Secrets of the Seven Keys, the Halloween album. What's it called? Mate, uh, as long as it's got Dr. Steen and his funny creatures on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything more to say about these these lines, Doc, or should we move on to the to the last little section? Yeah, let's move on to the last little section. Propaganda, war ensemble, burial to be. So we've got the repetition. Then it then it changes. Bones shining by the night in bloodlace misery. Campaign of elimination. Twisted psychology. When victory is to survive and death is defeat. And that's the end of, of the lyrics there. And another little bit of slayer judgment here without use of the word twisted. Well, campaign of elimination, twisted. Uh, is, is this a side reference to the Holocaust? Mm. And the reason I ask is because um, the purpose of Blitzkrieg was to defeat the enemy, to force them to capitulate. I absolutely accept that the success of your campaign might well be judged on the numbers of enemy dead. Mm. But um, the, the purpose of Blitzkrieg, at least, uh, I, I mean, whether or not Operation Reinhardt rolled in afterwards and started taking care of troublemakers, I have no idea. Um, but the purpose of Blitzkrieg was to obtain enemy capitulation. Sure. Um, it wasn't... A, a genocide may have been the end result, but genocide wasn't the main purpose of Blitzkrieg. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I, unless 
campaign of elimination twisted side, unless that's an explicit reference to uh, like what would happen after the capitulation, and then one assumes the Gestapo would roll in and um, all of the compliant locals who could be persuaded to do so would start building concentration camps, and then they'd start taking care of the troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Was Blitzkrieg, Doc, um, like the first example of what came to be known as like shock and awe during the Gulf, you know, during the Persian Gulf campaign? Um, um, you know, just the idea that you unleash such a volley, an arsenal of weapons against your enemy that they they perceive you to be an overwhelmingly superior force and effectively give in. I would argue that um, shock and awe was a much more cowardly doctrine mm. than Blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. Um, shock and awe was shock and awe was designed to frighten um, third world peasants into surrender. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I'm, 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 I'm certainly not suggesting it was a good thing to do, you know. But, sure. You know, but just you know, for, for, from a dispassionate, emotion-free viewpoint, what's your take um, on the question, Doc? No, I mean, let's, let's, uh, we, we can keep this cold blooded. Um, mm. We don't have to get all bleeding hearts about this. Yeah. Um, Operation Shock and Awe, uh, or the, the, the prelude to the invasion of Iraq, was to frighten um, a bunch of unarmed civilians into surrender. Yeah. Um, lots, lots, lots of pretty lights in the sky, yeah. uh, lots, lots of noisy aeroplanes. Yeah. Uh, crucially, very little engagement with the Iraqi army. Mm hmm. Um, the idea of Blitzkrieg was to to make the best use of new technology. Okay. Um, and uh, so this would involve things like having your supply trucks, having your supply trucks taking part in the battle. So the trucks would bring supplies right up to the front line. Mm-hmm. This would mean that your infantry could be very lightly armoured and could move very, very quickly. Sure. You used small tanks instead of big tanks that were more mobile. Use yeah. smaller infantry pieces that can be moved around much more easily. Um, you use air power in absolutely unprecedented amounts, um, and you use air power to suppress enemy air defences if there are any, but also to purposefully and precisionally take out enemy artillery, um, enemy strong points. Um, what it's the precursor of is not shock and awe. It's another thing that you'll see used almost as a matter of fact nowadays, which is what you call a combined arms operation. Sure. Um, so instead of the Navy and the Marines and the Army and the Air Force planning their campaign separately and occasionally getting in, getting in each other's way, which used to happen a lot, um, you will very often see, you will have, uh, and I mean, this is a mythical campaign I'm dreaming up off, off the top of my head. The Marines take the beach Um the engineers go in afterwards and put down a road at the beach. Then the cavalry go in with the tanks and the APCs. And all the time um, you've got naval aviation um, who are prowling for coastal targets. And at the same time, you've got paratroopers who go in to cleanse the woods immediately behind the beach. Mm. It seems bonkers. it seems bonkers, doesn't it, Doctor? The, the, like the default position wasn't to do it as like a combined a combined assault, because it, that that just makes so much sense. Um, but uh, d- don't underestimate the the strength of inter-service rivalry. Mm, oh, of course, um, yeah. If you can believe this, as recently as 1982, 
um, the Royal Air Force, when they were returning from bombing the runway at Port Stanley. Mm-hmm. That's they the, were uh, told, that's, just for the listeners that might not be aware, that's the Falklands conflict, isn't it? Yes, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to be warned to stay out of the way of the Navy because the Navy and the Air Force did not have a shared radio frequency. Mm. There's no way that the, the Air Force bombers had no way of contacting the Royal Navy and saying, we're on your side. Wow. Um, absolutely crazy, isn't and, it? Um, the Air Force brass refused to reveal their secret operation to the Navy so the Navy would know. So effectively, you had guys flying Vulcan bombers who had just tried to bomb the runway at Port Stanley. And the biggest danger they faced was being shot by their own Navy. Mm, mm, wow. It's, it's <laughs> absolute madness, isn't it? The reason I invoked shock and awe was because my, my understanding is that Blitzkrieg like, literally translates as lightning war. You know, so it's just this kind of, this concept of something that's going to be like a real short, sharp, terrifying shock, basically. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the blitz, um, I think it's this concept of uh, it comes out of a clear blue sky yeah. when you're not expecting. It's sure. very, very quick. Yeah. Um, and then it goes away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, wars in Europe up until that point had been horrible, messy, drawn out things. And yeah. particularly in Germany, the spectre of the Thirty Years' War hung over the place for a long time. Obviously, mm-hmm. in the Thirty Years' War, the battles were never that long and they were never that fierce. Mm. Um, what was problematic about that conflict was that as the war drug on, the armies began to accumulate camp followers who were basically parasites um, who would then stick around and parasitize the civilian populations um, that the war passed through. And they became a much bigger problem to absolutely everybody than the war did. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there's there's a way in which you can imagine you, you can envisage Blitzkrieg as being seen as as merciful in that context. So um, we're going to take your city. Make make no mistake, we are going to occupy Warsaw. Um, but grit your teeth and stay out of the way if you can, because it will all be over by tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be horrible, but it's going to be brief, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is not going to. This is not going to drag on into a three-year siege where people starve, um, except, of course, when you get to Stalingrad, which is exactly what happened. Sure. Don't, any, anything really vital you want to get off your chest before we move on to the last part of the show? Um, no, I, I, I think we've covered it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> It's one of those songs, and you, you could, we, we could spend hours um, going into the various illusions. I must work out um, what part, what, what bit from what William Blake poem those two lines remind me of. Sure, we'll, um, we'll drop that into the errata next week, Doc. Yeah, um, I should probably mention the aggressive modernism of the poetry um, a bit later on. I don't know whether it's meant to make you think of T.S. Eliot. It makes me mm-hmm. think of T.S. Eliot, but that, that's an aside. I'm finishing up my asides now. Um, once again, I don't know if this is a reference um, in that first verse. Um, so if, if we accept that this song is about what we think it's about, um, corpses rotting through the night in blood-laced misery. Um, it's 
a similar subject, so, so, so I shouldn't be surprised. There's a very famous song by the Rolling Stones called Sympathy for the Devil. contains the great line, I rode a tank in the general's rank when the Blitzkrieg raged and the body stank, which I also oh, yeah. love. Wow, yeah, great lyrics, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's a callback to that. Um, and now I think I'm done. I mean, I think these are great lyrics, Doc. I really, really do. It seems like another step up just in terms of quality. Um, you know, there's no, there's no silly rhymes. There's no like inadvertent um, kind of like lameness, you know, um, or mildness. I think they're tackling a, like a really serious subject. Yeah. And, they've, and they've sat down and said, right, let, let's do this. Let's fucking do this right. And I think, I, and I think they've nailed it, Doc. Um, so a couple of comments on that. Honestly, um, after... Um, losing our minds for a couple of weeks and doing the nocturnal key cast. <laughs> uh, I will never mock Slayer for unintentional mildness ever again. Welcome to part four of the show. Here we're just going to give you our final thoughts and summations. Uh, but before that, a few details. The album was released on October the 9th, 1990. Um, Writing credits for this song, music by the mighty Jeff Hanneman and lyrics by Jeff Hanneman and Tom Araya. Doc, maybe the raising quality is because Kerry King was nowhere near the fucking pen. What do we think about that? <laughs> I really, I'm getting really bored of myself just harshing on Kerry King so much. <laughs> um, I really, really want to notice improvement in Kerry King's writing. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes the bastard fools me. Sometimes he makes me think that I'm suddenly going to see an upturn in the quality of his writing. Yeah. And then he goes... And then, he, he, and then he goes and does something ridiculous like, I don't know, what, what was the rhyme about kill? And I'm going to go out and I will really, really, really kill. Something like that. <laughs> come on, um, come on, Kerry, do it. I don't think it was that sophisticated. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, I think he might have rhymed head and dead <laughs> quite <laughs> more recently. Unforgivable. Um, <laughs> but, so there he is, that man, Kerry King, keeps on teasing me and yeah. then keeps on laughing at me when I fall for it every time. That's it. According to Setlist uh, website, um, this track was played by Slayer 1,736 times, putting it in joint fourth position. Uh, the first play was at a place called The Chance in Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, one of my favourite place names ever, by the way, Poughkeepsie. I do love that as a place name. That was on the 7th of September 1990 and the last play inevitably was the last ever gig the forum in Inglewood 30th of November 2019 here's what Loudwire say about it they put it at number two doc 
um, in, in their ranking of Slayer tracks. And here's what they say. After slowing things down on South of Heaven, Slayer resurrected the ferocity of the groundbreaking Raining Blood immediately, opening seasons in the abyss with a volatile war ensemble. Only Slayer could write a song about war being a sport. The devastating twin attack of King and Hanuman found a new definition of ugly in its muddy tones. That goes to what you said, Doc, about, you know, they've deliberately kind of lo-fied the fuck out of that guitar sound. Um, yeah. Giving some extra muscle to their mid-tempo chugs, which slither malevolently around the song's back half. Beautifully written. A round of applause to whoever wrote that. That's absolutely wonderful. Definitely. Yeah. Great review. Yeah. Wrap it up for us, Doc. Give us your final thoughts, if you would. I almost wish I didn't know what was going to happen. Not because what's going to happen isn't great, because much of it is. Um, it's one of those things that I really wish I was hearing for the first time, because um, I would be I would be clenching my ass um, in the hope that the muscular contraptions would simultaneously stop me from spadging my pants. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I could do it politely, I would be applying the tantric pinch technique. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I would be like press, using my middle finger to press the base of my balls very, very hard to stop myself ejaculating, mm. just so I could, I, I just, just so I could put it off to to achieve the ultimate climax. Sure. Um, because um, that, as an album opener, that song is great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's it, it, you know, it, it 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 really could not be better. It's 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 ripping thrash it's in your face it's got some great groove in the middle those the audacity of that of the, you know that when they hit those kind of e chords 16 times in a row and jeff goes fucking not not jeff so dave goes fucking wild and jeff or kerry does that pick that pick slide oh man you know i mean it ain't goes to war because that's you know that, that that's my that is my favorite slayer track but i mean this is there's a fag paper between them, basically. This is Slayer at their at the height of their Slayerosity, Doc. It's fucking wonderful. Yeah, um, it, it does have a very, very high coefficient of Slayerosity. It does, yeah. So, um, I mean, it's almost it's almost redundant, but we, we need to pronounce, don't we? But I think we, I think we all, everybody listening knows what we're going to say. Unless you're going to shock me, Doc. No, um, I'm not. Um, yeah. I'm going to say, um, like you say, um, if there is a fag paper below max, mm. imagine a imagine a fag paper below maximum, and that's what I'm going to award it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's a ten, isn't it? A ten liquescent swords from 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 the dock, I imagine. Um, it's it's nine liquescent swords and one, I think, probably with a quarter of an inch chipped off the very tip of the blade. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, it's 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 getting just as straight. No modifications to the skull. It's just getting straight. Ten mouldering moskulls out of ten. It's absolutely sensational. What a way to start an album. All right, guys, that about does it for this episode. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slaytanicvercast at gmail.com. Join us next time when we'll be talking about track two from Seasons in the Abyss, which is, of course, Blood Red. You're going to be there, Doc? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>